despite months and months of planning, something will go wrong. It's how we as a collective respond to it that's going to determine our success. So going into it with this mindset of not tempting fate, but expecting that there's going to be a curveball thrown at you. And if you go in with eyes wide open, uh, with the planning that you've put in place, with the risk management plans that have been put in place, with the role playing that you've done, you're going to be able to deal with 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 most scenarios, and that you know that goes from you know weather weather warnings to uh, you know potentially a fire on the course to people dying. I mean, in, in in the course of my 30 years, I've had five people die on different events, and you know there's different reactions to 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 all of those kind of things. How it how it impacts the PR of the event, how it impacts your staff that might have been engaged in it. Um, how it impacts the family, inter interacting with the family, you know, all those kind of things have taught me so many valuable personal and business lessons. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an international authority on iconic large-scale mass participation events, a humble, loyal, and curious leader, and a passionate family man now living in Bali, Indonesia. Growing up in Zimbabwe, he studied a Bachelor of Commerce and Bachelor of Agricultural Management at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Getting his first taste of event management while at high school, our guest has over 30 years experience organizing and leading major events. During his career, he has been at the helm of events for more than 1 million participants in the likes of Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and India. He established Spectrum Worldwide in Australia in 1992, where he worked on the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games before establishing himself in Singapore at the commencement of the Asian health and fitness boom in the 2000s. In 2015, he established Mass Participation Asia, an annual conference for event stakeholders, before selling Spectrum Worldwide to Ironman in 2016. I'm pleased to introduce to you an enabler of people to have an active and healthy lifestyle. Author of Mass Participation Sport Events and Better Business, Better Life, Better World. Is a high impact consultant and a champion of buy one, give one. Chris Robb. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. Jeez, you brought back a few memories there. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Now you've had a, had a wonderful career. So let's go back in time a little bit here. As a global citizen, what was life like growing up on a farm in Zimbabwe? Look, it was wonderful. I, I had, uh, you know, an amazing foundation, amazing upbringing. Um, you know, grew, grew up, to be honest, pretty poor financially. Um, but in terms of life experiences, a, a really rich upbringing. You know, part of that growing up was in the midst of the independence war. So as a 15-year-old, I used to sleep with a gun next to my bed behind sandbags at night. Some mornings, most mornings at one period, my dad would walk 
the approximately one kilometer from our, our farm gate to the bitumen to see that landmines hadn't been been laid. And, you know, each farmer had their little segment of road that they walked before everyone went out in the morning. And, you know, kind of weird things that, you know, the, the town that we were in, Matari, which was on the, the, the eastern border with Mozambique, from time to time would get mortared during during the, the independence war. And, and as young kids, we couldn't wait for school to finish because we wanted to go out and fossick around golf courses and, and, and open land to see if we could find kind of mortifins and, and, and shrapnel as show and tell the next day. And, and I guess I, I share that not to shock and, 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 and be sensationalist, but I guess more to highlight that so often in, in, in life, you, you end up embracing the circumstances that you find yourself in. And, you know, to one person that's shocking to me, that's how I grew up as, as a kid. And it taught me, you know, amazing things. It taught me adaptability. It certainly taught me resilience. Um, I guess a degree of courage, the, the, the value of community and mateship, uh, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we, we, we valued, you learn to kind of live life and, and, and you use, you, you learn to, respect and value the community that you're in we you know we one of the other things we used to have would would be a minute silence for former pupils that had, had died in service and you know as i got older and older in school i, I sat in my a-level geography class listening to the results of the election that brought mugabe to power and and if the independence war hadn't ended i would have been you know potentially one of those next guys going off to do national service the next year um, and, you know, there would be times where I would go out on a Friday night, catch up with mates of mine from school days who I'd played sports with, and a week later their lives were lost. And, you know, tragic as in, as in so many wars, the, the waste of life on both sides. And, and, and I think it, you know, it taught me so much about that mateship, that respect. And, it, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, it's shown me, I mean, what, what's happened for all that that country went through, an amazing country it was in so many ways to where it's now ended up. And the tragedy for me is, is what's happened to the beautiful native Zimbabwean people. I can understand what was done to the, the expatriate white community, but you know, where, where those wonderful people have ended up is, is just, you know, again, a, a lesson for me and where there's opportunities for, I think, humanity to do better things in the world. Yeah, so it, it's it's a bit of a shame because I mean, obviously Zimbabwe has such a a beautiful countryside, and as you say, beautiful people as well. You know, it sort of it gets missed a lot as well because people talk about the war and the people and how it's changed. You know, for you growing up in that farm, did you even though you had lots going on, you would have had beautiful surroundings and scenery and wide open spaces, I would imagine too. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an outdoor person, absolutely love that to this day. And, you know, we, we in school holidays, we, we would be out the door after breakfast and back in just before the sun came up type of, uh, came, went down type of thing, you know, just going and playing in the dams and the canals and, uh, you know, r running around the farmland. It was just a wonderful, wonderful upbringing. And, and obviously, you know, sport was a part of that. I, I was a keen 800, 1500 meter runner and, you know, had these beautiful running environments running through farm tracks and on, on dirt roads and so on. And that kind of led me into, you know, in many ways, my career, which you, you articulated in, in, in the introduction. I, I organized my first fun run when I was a 16 year old at school. We, we used to run on I wonder how many of your view, your listeners would even remember them, the old-fashioned cinder tracks, uh, you know, which was, you know, a clay base with these 
little coal embers that were were, were rolled into into the base and, and and our track had had all of those washed away and for some reason I said well why don't we organize a fun run to resurface our track and a couple of the teachers and the headmaster said yeah great idea and I think they were pretty shocked when you know the the, the, the run ended up happening and it wasn't massive as was a few hundred people but you know I remember walking into the the headmaster's office with this big bag full of cash that we'd raised and it was the teachers were then okay we you know we better find a way to do this project to resurface the track and it gave me this wonderful thrill of you know doing something for the community seeing the smiles on people's faces as as they cross the, the finish line i guess i enjoyed the entrepreneurial elements of it getting some sponsorship getting the the, the permits I, I never in my wildest dreams kind of anticipated that i was laying a foundation for what would turn out into a into a 30-year career so you studied commerce and agricultural economics. You know, what was that career dream early on? You know, obviously, yes, you had that little inspiration of events at sixteen, but it must have looked something looked like something else at the beginning there. Look, absolutely, it was you know one hundred and fifty percent going back and running the family farm. I, I, I love the agricultural side of it. The first degree was a bachelor of of agriculture, and and in my second year at university, I, I got a I, I, I used to, you know, it was back in the days, obviously, before the internet and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there, there would be kind of once a week, once a fortnight calls back home. And I happened to be speaking to my aunt uh, one night and she said, oh, such a shame that your mom and dad are, are leaving to go back to England. I was like, what? You know, we hadn't even had that conversation. It was a real shock. But mom and dad had decided that for the future of my, my sister, who at that age was still 14, 15, uh, they saw the education system crumbling already and uh, and they were both from England. Dad was four when he came out and, and, and mum was 12 and they, they obviously met there and raised the family and they said, we're going to head back. So the family farm got sold very quickly uh, and and that opportunity kind of disappeared, albeit that it was still my intention when I finished university. I, I did my Bachelor of, of, of Agricultural Management and then I went on and did a Bachelor of Commerce and my intention had been to go back and run the, run, not, not run the family farm but then go and find a, another job in agriculture and I was fortunate to have a, a year of, um, a, a year of uh, what was supposed to be a year of study post-university. Uh, post uh, a year of travel, sorry, and, and that turned into four years, and at which time I came to Australia after the first year, fell in love with it within within hours. I mean, literally, you know, I'd been been in Europe, I'd done this amazing contiki trip around Europe with people who are still, many of them, my, my best friends, and um, landed in Sydney, caught the bus down down the road to, to, to Melbourne, and had this amazing couple of months uh, sporting tour, you know, went to the Melbourne Cup, back the winner. It was Lexalope <laughs> in those years, and I don't know if there was anything in the in in the name of the winner, which was maybe relevant. I didn't elope with anyone to Australia, but uh, let's elope and move to another country, I guess. Then went to Adelaide for the Grand Prix, to Brisbane for the for the cricket test with the West Indies, and in between that, the Wallabies were touring, and we were up until all hours of the night watching watching uh, them play. And so, you know, all all that stuff that I was so passionate about in this country that I ultimately three years later emigrated to. So immigrating to Australia, what was the driver behind establishing an event company? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really interesting one and it's, uh, can I put my hand up and say it was like hugely strategic. It was, you know, arrived in Australia as a massively, you know, enthusiastic, passionate 25 year old. I think I had 
about $15,000 of my worldly possessions and savings. And by the time I've set up a flat and everything, I probably had $5,000 worth of working capital, if that. And it was just kind of like, well, we did these uh, corporate relays in South Africa, and a part of which I, I didn't allude to earlier. While I was at university, I probably spent more time organizing events in South Africa than I did studying. I, you know, Our university had this great portfolio of events. I worked on the, the world-famous Comrades Marathon, and I ran a little... Literally, I was running an office for a sports management company out of my, my, my spare room. I ended up being a subwarden of the university, and I had this little flat which had a spare room. And I was organizing different events, a kind of a sub-branch for uh, my, my campus was Peter Maritzburg, and the main office was in Durban. And it was, we, we ran these massive corporate running events with 10,000 participants. And it was like, well, why don't I do that in Australia? It doesn't exist. So with, with little business plan or business now, to be honest, it was just like, okay, why don't we do it? And I went and knocked on the door of South African Airways and they understood the, the concepts and, and, and organized my, my first event, which then grew into a series with Deloitte as a sponsor. And we had uh, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane, um, and that laid that foundation to build a bit of a network and be recognized for what I was doing that then gave me the amazing break to be the road event supervisor at the Sydney Olympics, which still is, you know, one of my career highlights in, in, in many ways. And, you know, one, one of the things that I believe our industry brings is what I call money can't buy experiences, you know, sitting on the lead vehicle of the Olympic men's and women's marathon and the Paralympic marathon in the heart of Singapore was kind of like a pinch yourself moment the, the the little boy from the the farm in zimbabwe that, uh, that that's here you know working on an olympics and you know th those kind of opportunities the wealthiest man or woman in the world couldn't have bought that seat and, and here i was in the midst of it and there are many of those that constantly get thrown up and, and some of the ones that give me the most pleasure are being kind of stopped in the street by someone saying you know Thanks to you, my life changed. You know, I, I participated in that cycling event that you created in Singapore, and my boss twisted my arm and got me to borrow a mountain bike, and I rode 20 k's in in the community ride, and I now run five ride ride five times a week. And here's my my fancy road bike that I've spent ten thousand dollars on, and you've completely changed my life. You know, those kind of things doesn't matter how much you got in the in, in the bank account to be able to get that kind of affirmation that you're you're changing people's lives give, give me such such a buzz when i'm coming back to these what i call money can't buy experiences it's interesting because you know i spent quite a bit of time in high performance sport and coaching some really good elite athletes but in the end it i i came out of that sort of zone into working in participation and working with masses because uh, it is those special moments where you touch someone and you you transform their lives that really um, I don't know it, it does it grabs something deep down inside of you and really makes it worthwhile the work that you do yeah absolutely and and you know that just seeing the smiles on people's faces I think we all know that in this day and age we we live these increasingly busy lives we're so connected to technology and you know see see people out for for dinner and everyone sitting around the phone on, on, on around the table on their phones and and to see these you know the, the kids stuff i just love seeing you know the kids dashes and the kids cycling events and the the parents with big smiles running along next to their kids and if, if those things have just that little bit of changing people's lives that parents are getting out and being active with their kids and their kids are getting exposed to something that's not around technology that's hopefully going to impact their their health and well-being for the better and you know we focus on on the physical health but i think 
so so increasingly we need to be be finding solutions for mental health with this disconnection that we have with the pressure that everybody's under with the need for kids to perform at a really young age i just believe that exercise has such a role to play in that and that doesn't mean being an elite athlete or a, you know or, or or running a marathon in a, in a personal best it means connecting with a community and a tribe and training and, and and doing things together and taking you into the outdoors it's just i think so crucial to the future health and well-being of the world it's so talking about tribes and building communities i know you you know you spend a lot of time in singapore that's a huge part of how the government is looking at bringing people together is through sport right there's uh, less people getting married, there are less children being bored. So they're like, okay, let's create communities to bring people together to hopefully connect and then, you know, produce the next generation. So it's it's fascinating that that whole community tribe aspect and it's really starting to take connect now. You see it with Parkrun, um, you see it with Ironman to at more of an extreme level, but you know, it's just those local sporting clubs and local sporting events that really matter as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is getting more governments globally to recognize the value of sport and mass participation sport um, to, to drive change and, and cohesion within communities, social bonding and, and so on. And I think, you know, one of the things that the sports industry generally has been very good at over the years is, is articulating economic impact but but i think that the area that is massively being overlooked is the social and health impact and you know we we have these situations where uh you know you, you go into cities and you sit around table with governments and you see sport at the table you see tourism at the table but very seldom do you see health at the table and 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 i, and I really believe you know we we had a you know a complete misnomer in Singapore when I was organizing the Singapore Marathon. So, you know, at its peak, it was 60,000 participants, probably around 50,000 of them Singaporeans. And we were paying SingHealth a significant six-finger number to provide the medical care for, for that event. And I was kind of like saying, isn't this completely the wrong way around? You know, we're, 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 we're creating health savings, better productivity, all these kind of things within this community. And we're we're, we're paying for the right right to, to do that. Shouldn't we be getting governments? And, and as you say, Singapore's, I believe, a global leader in that. So I'm not pointing a finger at Singapore. What I'm saying is that even a government as enlightened as Singapore into the values of these things are having those kind of models in place. Some of the obstacles that we need to overcome for better collaboration in other cities to ensure that governments are saying, well, and, and it's not, I'm not saying this is about a handout. It's not necessarily just giving big grants. It's about reducing the boundaries, putting in permit uh, permit situations that are easier to close roads, to designing parks and roads in such a way that they can accommodate events um, and, and recognizing the value that not just mass, but sport generally can bring, bring to the well-being of communities. It's interesting you talk about that New Zealand released their wellness budget um, earlier this year and I know talking to some of the people that work in sport New Zealand is they've actually bringing together health, sport, um, etc. into the room now to work together and they've actually got sport leading it, leading that task force. Um, so it's, it's probably the first time we've ever seen that and I think it's, it's crucial um, to the, the future of how we live our lifestyles and the well-being of, as you say, mentally, it's not just physically, it's, it's more that mental aspect that's gonna be so crucial now that the digital age has really kicked into gear. 
Yeah, no, look, absolutely. And, you know, one of the big boom areas is, is eSports, which you, you, I'm sure, you know, or my, and you, you, your listeners would have had it been under a rock probably to not notice how it's how it's growing. You know, there was there was a stat that was uh, a, a graphic that was put out the other week. There's just been a massive esports competition, and 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 the the winner, the young 18 year old kid, won more than Novak Djokovic won winning Wimbledon, and Tiger Woods winning winning the the U.S. Open. And and you know th- those are the kind of things which, on one level, that's amazing, but it's it's driving those. And I'm not necessarily saying it's terrible, but what's the kind of antidote of these kids that are spending all this time gaming and, and, and being engaged? And obviously that's building a tribe and community and connection. But I think there needs to be some collaboration to ensure that we're getting the, the physical part of that as well. I think at the high end in, in esports, we won't talk about this too long, but you know, with the high end, those real high end competitors, they do lead a really high performance life and they do do a lot of strength conditioning. They are fit and healthy. They, they go to they generally get good sleep and they have nutritionists and people around them, but it's that next year down from that, that, that yeah. we're not seeing that. It's a big drop off straight away from the elite competitors down to here is the rest of the people playing esports. They're just sitting there and they're not being healthy. They're not moving their bodies and they're not getting that mental relaxation that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're so right. So moving to Singapore and sort of being involved with the Standard Charter Marathon, which is a phenomenal event. It happened at that commencement of that, the Asian health and fitness boom. For you, what was that backstory to moving to Singapore? Yeah, again, it was, uh, I can't claim any strategic credit for it at all. So um, JP Morgan had become a client after the Olympics in, uh, in, in Sydney. Uh, and we ended up organizing the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge, which is this global corporate run which they, they have in, I think they're now in probably 18 cities, so big Frankfurt, London. Uh, I think the Frankfurt event is probably one of the biggest events in the world, 73-odd thousand participants, uh, and, and all across the US and, and South Africa, and they, and they came to Australia, and uh, uh, we, we, we were involved in fundamentally the, a, a small role in the first year and a, and a bigger role going forward, and built a great partnership and relationship with them that when they wanted to expand it to Asia, they asked me to help them do that. And we did some feasibility studies and, and ultimately ended up in Singapore, as you mentioned, just when the boom was happening. And um, they, they kind of went through a process and said, look, Chris, you know, we, we'd love you to set up an office in Singapore to help us deliver the event. So I had this wonderful, completely non-strategic opportunity where, you know, was in the right place at the right time. Big global bank wanted me to, to help them, um, you know, and to have an anchor client like that in Singapore was absolutely amazing. And we set that event up and, and it, you know, we went in there with, um, it's a while ago now, but I think our, our goal was 3,000 participants and we got 7,300 participants in the first year. Uh, and, and that event grew on and then I got an opportunity on the marathon and then had the opportunity to see that, you know, there was a there was a gap in the cycling space. So I created the, the Cycle Singapore event, which grew into Cycle Asia with events in um, Malaysia and the Philippines and linking in with events. And, you know, Robbie McEwen's event on the Gold Coast, Robbie became our, our ambassador. So wonderful to, to, to work with, with Robbie in that space and see, you know, linked with David Hansen, who you probably know from Super Sprint. So, you know, his, his event, Great Great Ocean Road and Otway Classic became one of our partner events. So we had this kind of network of cycling events with probably about 25,000 participants across the region as that cycling boom came through as well. And, you know, creating again something from grassroots, little kids, thousand kids, you know, riding on the Saturday, the pros, so that this, this whole kind of 
festival experience where they could have the pros to aspire to and the, and the kids at the beginning and, and, then, and then the adults riding anything from 20 kilometers to 60 kilometers in the heart of a, of a crazy busy CBD was, uh, was just wonderful to see you know, the, the, the explosion of, of these kind of events which still continues to happen across Asia. So shutting down one of the world's busiest cities is by no means an easy feat. What goes into putting on an event of that scale, like the Singapore Marathon, that people probably wouldn't know? Yeah, look, there's a huge amount behind the scenes. It's you know, it's it's year-round planning. Um, you know, on on a, on a simple term, maybe to compare from a business perspective, we go from you know zero to sixty thousand customers in the space of about six months. You know, open registrations, all these people sign up. You're engaging with them. You're marketing to them. You're you're attracting them. And from a staffing perspective, you go from about a, a full-time team of 30 staff I had at, at, at the end to, to a team of 5,000 people, which is, again, you know, that kind of ramp up in the space of about three months. So training, deploying, um, briefing, all that kind of stuff that goes into that months and months of what we call stakeholder engagement. So, you know, li lining up the course engaging with all those people that are going to be impacted along the way the big hotels the hospitals the places of worship the fire stations the police to say nothing of all of the the commuters uh, albeit not a commute day on a sunday but just people that might be going out to church going to catch up with their family you know putting in place plans to communicate with them so communication are a really key element of it and then, you know, on, on, on the day, the, the analogy that I or the, 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 I guess the message that I always give, it's despite months and months of planning, something will go wrong. It's how we as a collective respond to it that's going to determine our success. So going into it with this mindset of not tempting fate, but expecting that there's going to be a curveball thrown at you. And if you go in with eyes wide open, uh, with the planning that you've put in place, with the risk management plans that have been put in place, with the role playing that you've done, you're going to be able to deal with 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 most scenarios, and that you know that goes from you know weather weather warnings to uh, you know potentially a fire on the course to people dying. I mean, in, in in the course of my 30 years, I've had five people die on different events, and you know there's different reactions to 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 all of those kind of things. How it how it impacts the PR of the event, how it impacts your staff that might have been engaged in it, um, how it impacts the family, inter interacting with the family. You know, all those kind of things have taught me so many valuable personal and business lessons. Um, and, and I guess taught me that, you know, fundamentally, it's about empowering people and letting them do their jobs. Uh, you know, I put my hand up and say there's an element of me that can be a bit of a micromanager. But if, if, you're, if you've got an event of that magnitude, it's impossible to, to micromanage. You've got to have a structure in place. You've got to have the communication lines very clear. Um, and you've got to have a way of resolving challenges. And, you know, it, it was one of my most satisfying days of every year, being the race director, standing in the command center, control center with probably 50 different people in there from the different functional areas from your police and your medical and, and you know all your different functional areas within the uh, within the the race organizing group troubleshooting and, and 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 empowering people and then trying to help them when when a problem came up so we'd have all these people sitting in a room all of them have incident logs where they're logging incidences that might might be happening you know there's police that won't let a bus into a particular junction as we're deploying our volunteers 
and they're logging these in a timeline and I'm literally just walking around looking over people's shoulders saying, hey, that was 20 minutes ago. It's pretty crucial. You know, how are we going to respond to that? Just split second stuff of, you know, we're, we're two minutes away from the, from the race starting and we haven't got a green light that the course is closed yet. Are we going to have to delay it? And then that miraculous 30 seconds before you get your course director coming through saying we're green, we're ready to launch the race recognizing that you're going live to global television and you know there's there's contingencies built in place there that you might be able to delay for a couple of minutes but you know not much more than that because you then miss maybe the prize giving at the end of it or you know the winner crossing the line you know there's all sorts of knock-on effects that come into that but uh, yeah just just really love putting that jigsaw together and, uh, and 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 making sure that everyone knows what they're doing but is also empowered to make decisions it's pretty much like a CEO running a business, um, except what they would normally do in a year or maybe two or three years happens all in one, one, one hour, uh, one, one day, right? Yeah, kind of. It is. It's it, it, it's it's so fast tracked uh, that yeah, it's uh, the, the the sheer magnitude of it. And again, you know, a CEO obviously probably running a global business is talking to remote offices but in most instances that's kind of an indoor environment we're talking about an outdoor environment with all of the nuances of nature of whether it be wind whether it be lightning whether it be storms you know the issues of traffic that are moving around that uh, and and you know the live element of it, of it as well i mean you know there's many businesses that obviously have deadlines of a product launch or a website going live or whatever we're also non-negotiable you know you go live on tv at 5 30 a.m in the morning to a global audience it's it's got to happen um so yeah i think i think there's yeah lots of parallels with a ceo that's that's got a you know massive workforce all over the world that 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 is driving on, on on commitments and deadlines and so on so let's change and tack to the left a little bit here yeah. How, how would stakeholders describe your leadership style? Collaborative, I think. You know, I'm, I'm always always looking for a solution. There's always a, whenever you're involved in a partnership, which it has to be, uh, we've, we've all got our challenges. And, you know, you spoke about yourself being involved in, in, in mass participation events. I've seen situations of, rights holders as we call the call the people that own a particular brand or a, you know that might be going up from an olympics to a to a very high profile brand to someone who's got their local event kind of going and saying we're bringing this to you you should shut the roads and make it happen as opposed to going and saying we've got this concept that we'd love to bring to you let's sit around a table and understand what your challenges are let's recognize that you know the police who are often seen as being obstructive and the and the RTA people if you're not going with a partnership approach it's oh the police wouldn't let us do this and the LTA wouldn't let us close the roads the reality is that they've got a whole bunch of other things that that they need to deal with so a great example of that probably is my first event in Singapore the JP Morgan corporate challenge Eight days before that event, um, the Nickel Highway, which is one of Singapore's main arterials, collapsed. They were building a new MRT tunnel. Tragically, four people, I think it was four people lost their lives. And eight days before the event, we had seven, nearly seven and a half thousand people that had entered. And we sat for days not knowing whether our event would go ahead. And, and the important part of where we came from is that we're sitting over here with our problem, which looks massive to us. We've got seven and a half thousand people that need to run an event. We've got a global sponsor out of New York. But 
you know, what about all these problems that the, the, the authorities have got in Singapore of, you know, trying to extract bodies, see if there's any survivors, make the traffic move. And if we hadn't gone into that with a partnership approach, if we'd gone banging on the door and saying, give us an answer, we need to decide whether we're going to run our event, we would have never got the solution we did, which was at midnight the night before, getting the green light, standing on a street corner saying, it's okay, your, your event can go ahead. We'd gone through all sorts of contingencies. We'd laid bitumen on a road. They have these duck, these amphibious vehicles, which many cities have, which do these city tours. We'd work with them to lay bitumen on their road, that that might be an alternate route for the runners. Uh, we'd worked with all of our different partners and stakeholders to make sure that we were ready. But it was a very much partnership collaborative approach at every level with our suppliers, with our sponsor, with the city authorities, with our medical people. We ended up tragically having a death on the event as well. Um, so, you know, all these curveballs thrown at us. Um, the, the lady from JP Morgan sat in the debrief and said, congratulations, you guys have delivered a successful event despite hitting every speed bump in year one that most events I've worked with take 20 years to hit. And it was wonderful learnings. And yeah, if we hadn't had a collaborative partnership approach, I think we would have struggled to pull that off. Many CEOs and leaders don't see themselves in the same light as other high performers such as athletes, singers, dancers, artists, and speakers. How would you define a high performing CEO or leader? That's a great question. I think, I think it's, it's someone who surrounds themselves with a support team, and that's a team directly working for them maybe, but also a team that's, that's around them. One of my biggest lessons that I always give, I, I do quite a lot of mentoring, and I often get asked by young people, if you were entering the business at my age, what would I do? And the first tip I give them every time is surround yourself with a great group of, of mentors. So, you know, whether you're a great CEO who's at the top of the tree in a big global company, being surrounded by people that are supporting you, much like an athlete has, you know, a nutritionist and a physio, and I don't need to tell you all of those, but, you know, that team that's supporting them, it's keeping yourself mentally and physically in shape. So having, having your rituals, whatever those may be, to ensure that, you know, you've got great diet, you, you know, for me, meditating in the morning, journaling, exercising, whatever that may be to get you in the best opportunity to be in, in peak performance flow at, at, at the, when you sit down at your desk and in your life generally. I think it's very much about balance. For me, that is, that is hugely important. I've got a little four-year-old son coming on to five, and, and that, that is so important to me is making sure that, that I have time with, with him and my wife. So having this, you know, not, not only being, being fully focused on the work, work element of it, and I, and I guess, and I'm not always good at it, but trying to be present in, in every situation you're in. So, you know, when it's Sunday and it's spending time with the family, and hopefully it's not only Sunday, leave the phone at home and go and have breakfast and, and, and not be distracted at looking at the work emails or, or, or WhatsApp messages or whatever else. So that, that whole, whole balance, but the real key to me is that immediate team that might be working with and for you, and then that bigger team that's mentoring and supporting you that you can turn with. The reality is it's lonely at the top if you're an athlete, it's lonely at the, at the top when you're a CEO, and having that team that can support you in the tough times and celebrate with you in the good times, and I think that's that's one of the things as well as celebrating the small wins as well as the big wins along the way. So you talked about meditating there and, and having that quiet time. 
in moments that challenge us, people fight, flight, and sometimes even float. Uh, can you describe the immense power of pause? Yeah, look, it's one of them. In fact, I just did a talk here in Bali the other day um, on, on the power of pause. And, and w one of the examples that I, that I used was um, a couple of years ago, about nearly seven years ago now, I was in, I was in the UK and um, I was spending the last couple of weeks of, of his life with my dad who was dying from cancer. And um, I was sleeping on a mattress in the living room floor. And, and in the midst of the night, I had this, help, help, help. And I jumped up thinking that it was my dad and turned out that it was my mom thinking she was having a heart attack. And I jumped on the phone, obviously, straight away, called triple zero. And, and we had this bizarre situation of, you know, my dad in the bed there, my mom in the bed there, the me running up and down the steps waiting for the, the, the people to, to the, the paramedics to come and anyone who's ever done a triple zero call will know that it can be intensely painful because they're asking you all these important questions. They're pausing to get the right information from you so that they can make the right decision. These paramedics arrived in what seemed like many, many, many minutes and I'm, I'm sure it was only a couple and they came purposely walking up the stairs and I expected them to come bolting up the stairs and they stopped at the door and they were asking my mom questions and clearly surveying the scene and, and my mind was racing saying come on come on my mom's having a heart attack here and then in that instant the penny dropped and I recognized that they were using the power of pause to for probably 10, 15 seconds to analyze the situation before moving forward. And it's a story I've told many times because I think at its extremity, it emphasizes the importance of pause. If a paramedic who's treating someone in a life, potentially life-threatening situation can find the time to step back to pause to analyze the situation, how can't we in a business or a personal situation, how often have we sent that email in a rush and regretted it afterwards or rushed into a situation when we could have stepped back. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not always perfect at it, but it's always this, hey, take a deep breath. You've got a moment to survey the situation. If a paramedic can do it, every one of us can do it in almost every situation in life. So an extreme way of exhibiting that it, I think it is so, so powerful and often overlooked. And talking about people that use the power of pause, you had an opportunity to sit down and spend some time with Sir Richard Branson. You know, how important is it to have key global figures championing having an active and healthy lifestyle? Look, I think it's 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 absolutely crucial. We we need more of those kind of people that are that are coming out in in, in favour of um, keeping yourself active. On a, on a daily basis. So, you know, he is a great example, uh, not only of a, a, as an advocate, but, you know, see, seeing this man uh, just so fit, so healthy, so vibrant, you know, watching him going out paragliding. And, you know, we the first day we were there, we had this uh, little regatta and, uh, you know, he, he was he was on the lead boat and, you know, navigating it. And, and then, you know, the next day he was on the tennis court and I found this incredible way of introducing myself to a billionaire i had this uh, absolutely wonderful opportunity to play tennis as, as as richard's doubles partner 
and my first serve was whacked straight into the back of his head. Um, I, 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 I'm hoping he won't forget me. <laughs> but but it was you know I then went to take my second serve and 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 in typical Richard Branson Larrikin style, he was nowhere to be seen. And I looked across and he was literally cowering behind the net, uh, protecting himself for the second third. So you know there's a man who lives life with fun and laughter and activity and and all of those kind of things so you know sometimes i think in the in the daily hustle bustle when we're under stress we forget to laugh we forget to have fun uh, i'm lucky i get often reminded by by my little boy sam who's a real little practical joker and sometimes even as a parent you get kind of caught up as come on sam hurry up we're running late for school and i constantly catch myself as this is a great opportunity to learn from a little kid to say, you know, does it really matter if we're going to be a minute or two late because here's a little boy having fun playing a practical joke on his dad uh, and, 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 and let's embrace that and enjoy those moments. You know, often I'll be lying down in the morning doing my, my meditation and, and he wakes up a little earlier than, than I might want him to and, and I'm lying there with my, my face mask on. And, you know, next thing I hear the little pitter-patter of feet and my, way, my, my face marks gets ripped off. And there was a time in the, the first time it happened, it was, oh, damn, I can't f- finish my meditation. And I now just absolutely embrace it and love it. You know, how, how beautiful is that, that my little boy then comes and lies on top of me while I'm, I'm finishing my meditation and I get to get a cuddle in the morning. And, you know, there's this wonderful opportunity that could get lost in saying, come on, there's a rush here. Let's get on with the day that lies ahead of us. So you've written two outstanding books, Mass Participation Sport Events and Better Business, Better Life, Better World. What was the why behind sitting down and putting pen to paper for both topics? Yeah, from, from, from the, the book perspective, the first one, Mass Participation Sports, I recognized how lucky I was to have built up all this knowledge in my industry and really when I started, there weren't a lot of mentors around. The industry was in its infancy. And I learned a lot of things the hard way by making mistakes. And the reality is that I still make lots of mistakes and we all do. And I think they present the best learning opportunities. But it was kind of like if I can share what I've got here, uh, what I know with other people to make it a shortcut to them within the industry uh, to, to help make it easier for the future leaders of our industry to help grow our industry. That's something that, that I would love to do. And then the, uh, the, the better business, better life, better world was through B1G1, through the wonderful Paul Dunn and Masami Saito. Um, and there was a group of us. I, I was just one of many contributors in that. And, you know, the why there was, again, to share a few of my life stories in the hope that, that they might be able to inspire others to make a powerful impact on the world. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? I had a wonderful experience two weekends ago where I took my son Sam on his first camping trip. So it wasn't my first camping trip, but it was the first time I'd gone camping with Sam we sat at night around the campfire overlooking uh, Mount Batur uh, and then woke up to this incredible sunrise the next morning and just a, just a priceless, priceless uh, opportunity. Beautiful. What is the one question that you would love to solve? I think it's 
how can we as an industry and the mass participation industry, but indeed the global community collaborate better? I think we've moved past or are moving past this time of competition and how, how can we, we see, sure there needs to be an element of competition, but I believe the way forward for solving some of the challenges of, of the world is collaboration and partnership and how can we uh, perpetuate that at a faster rate. How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? It's a great question and I think it's when things are just flowing when and, and very often it's kind of like the day has started with the ritual, the, the meditation, the bike ride, the family time, and I sit down and it's like, my goodness, you know, it's mid-afternoon already and things have gone in a blur. Things have kind of come to me rather than me having to pull them towards me. It's been, uh, it's been great to talk with you and I'm sure, you know, I've got a lot of insights out of this and I'm sure a lot of people have got things that they still have questions about or want to learn a bit more about. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, look, number of different ways. Thanks for that. Uh, my, my, my email, chris at chrisrob.asia. Um, you mentioned Mass Participation Asia in the intro. Mass Participation Asia recently, about three weeks ago, became Mass Participation World. So this once a year conference in Singapore is now becoming a global footprint with a partner um, out of London, Mike Laughlin, where we're building a number of different verticals, conferences, research, advisory and, and education. So go and visit uh, massparticipationworld.com. Uh, my personal web, website, chris uh, at chrisrob.asia, uh, chris, chris sorry, www.chrisrob.asia. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, so uh, yeah, through all of those. But yeah, maybe maybe directly through through my email, chris at chrisrob, uh, chris, chris at chrisrob.asia. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've really enjoyed that, that journey you took from being on a humble beginnings on a farm in Zimbabwe. And you know, to everyone else, it would have seemed like a lot of adversity, but for you, it was opportunity and how you just grow up in a life and what's normal to you. To seeing the world when you went on your OE and ended up in Australia and found yourself in a new life with new beginnings and an opportunity to start a business with very little money and be able to establish something very powerful that is changing more than a million people around the world um, over a number of years. Your insights into your leadership and especially the, think, the area around you know, the importance of collaboration and how important that is to put people around us that maybe have more experience than what we do and in some ways collectively grow the expertise in that room to ensure that the better decisions are made. To grasp how you've dealt with adversity, say with your events and doing them at speed. You know, as we mentioned, kind of it's what a CEO would normally handle in a year happens within a 24 hour period, sometimes within a two hour period. And you've got to be able to make those decisions clearly. You've got to be able to articulate them with purpose and you need to make sure that you've got everyone bought into those decisions that are being made. And I really like to finish off with, you know, talking about bringing things into perspective and how important it was to just kind of be in that moment and be present, especially when you've got the little things that 
they're probably the more important things. They, they, they seem little, but they are much bigger than little around things like your kids and really appreciating those moments, having a laugh and really enjoying life. So thank you, Chris, for a wonderful conversation. We look forward to continuing it in the future and seeing how your projects continue to thrive around the world. Thank you so much, Craig. Been wonderful, really. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely loved it. And it's, it's gone by in a blur, which is, you know, you asked the question there, you know, when you're in flow, it just, uh, it feels like it's been 10 minutes. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. This week's Active CEO wellness tip is life is not a dress rehearsal. It is important that you turn up, show up, and be present right now. It's not about what you did yesterday or what you plan to do in the future. It's all about this one second, one minute, one hour, or even one day, and that you are ready to go. You deserve it, and so do the people around you. So you need to make sure that you're turned on and you're delivering that best performance and you're not just waiting, oh, you know what, I'll do it tomorrow. Or you know what, I'll step up the next day. You've got to do it right now. Be in that moment, make sure your performance is right where it needs to be and that you're doing yourself justice and the team around you. Thank you for listening to a phenomenal conversation with Chris Robb discussing money can't buy experiences on episode 51 of the active ceo podcast being present is a powerful currency that all ceos and leaders need to own the ability to show up turn up no matter how busy you are how tired you may be or even how stressed you are is crucial to inspiring motivating and influencing. We have developed CEO presence to share with you the tools to ensure you bring the energy, perform with authenticity, and be there in the moment, whether at work, out socializing, and most importantly, when at home. What are the verbal and most importantly, non-verbal communication styles that you are using? What messages are you sending with your body language gestures, tone, and words that you are speaking. CEO presence is one of the three Ps we have developed as part of breaking the CEO code to help you become a high-performing CEO, leader, and human being. If you would like to know how Energy to Perform can help you be a high-performing leader, then please contact us on www nrg number two perform.com website this is the active ceo podcast where the ordinary don't belong join the active ceo movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com that's nrg number two perform.com share this podcast on linkedin and be sure to tag in nrg to perform leave a review on iTunes, drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.